0: don't be an entrepreneur because you're chasing status or necessarily focused on some sort of lucrative exit. You become an entrepreneur because it's just an absolute passion, right? You have this passion to build something or solve something or you know crack a problem. And, and oftentimes, we, we refer to adversity, but oftentimes if you're doing it right, you are eating, sleeping, and breathing this thing. It is your baby, sometimes to the detriment of, of hobbies, and free time, and even even relationships, and and stomach lining, et cetera. So, only go into I mean go into it with your eyes wide open, and only go into it if if it is a true passion.
1: Welcome to the In Factor: conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and our next guest, Ian Barkin, is an entrepreneur investor educator, speaker, and executive. He was the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Symphony Ventures, which helps enterprises leverage the latest robotic process automation and innovative resource solutions. Since the acquisition of Symphony by Sykes Enterprises, a leading provider of customer engagement services, Ian has served as their chief strategy and marketing officer. Today, I had the chance to sit down with Ian to discuss his thoughts on entrepreneurship, the future of the workplace, and talent development. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Ian, thank you for joining me today on InFactor. I'm really excited to have the chance to sit down and talk with you.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So really, you've been here in the Tampa Bay area for about 18 months, but you came here Because your company, Symphony Ventures, which you started a number of years ago, was acquired by Sykes, and I want to talk about that here in a little bit, but I'm really interested to hear about Symphony Ventures. It's based in Robotics Process Automation, and so tell us a little bit about the company. Who are the customers, what does the company do, and what is Robotics Process Automation or RPA?
0: Certainly, my pleasure. So yes, as you said, I co-founded a consultancy called Symphony Ventures about six years ago now, maybe a little bit longer ago, and its roots were in helping enterprises apply a class of technology that became known as robotic process automation, or RPA for short. And I'm going to give you, I'll start there. I'll give you the longer definition just because I've taught RPA, I've got courses online. I'm I'm really quite passionate about people understanding what it is. So I'll give you the longer and I'll give you a shorter one. But often I start with, so RPA is a configurable software tool that uses business rules and sequences of actions to automatically complete processes in any number of different applications the same way a person would. And so what that means really is just, it's software that does what we do as long as what we're doing is rule-based and transactional and often we find those tasks mundane or boring. And so RPA came along to help enterprises to speed that up, to automate it. And so we recognized an opportunity, started a consultancy to help big companies and medium and small, but often we work with big ones to make the most of and to leverage this technology to drive efficiencies and operational improvement and cost reduction.
1: Very cool. So would this fall under the category of artificial intelligence? Are we training machines?
0: It's a great question. Yeah, so there's an imperfect hierarchy of software complexity and capability in the earliest days, RPA was also referred to, it almost sounds like a pejorative, it wasn't necessarily meant to be, but RPA was described as, as macros on steroids. And so it was just, you know, a macro is a relatively simple way to, to copy something you just did. And it's more complex than that, but only slightly and so it, it means that RPA isn't what you would think of traditionally as, as artificial intelligence which is, is quite a bit more sophisticated although RPA and cognitive capabilities like AI are you're seeing combined more and more often in solutions to solve enterprise problems.
1: Mm-hmm. Very cool. So tell us about your background. You know when I work with students I often get the question about, you know, they love to hear about how people got into their business because they want to see that the possibilities are there for them. So how did you find yourself in this field and in this industry?
0: Sure. So the furthest back background, I suppose, I'll I'll start with education. I mean, I majored in economics and psychology. I was intrigued by business, probably just because I was intrigued by the idea of, of traveling around the world working with various different people in various different industries around the planet. But it was no more thought out or sophisticated than that. And then really just based on happenstance, and and I attribute a lot of the the success that I've had over the last few years to just good old-fashioned luck, I found myself in the right place at the right time. And so I was in consulting for a little while, and then I moved over to it's called outsourcing or offshoring where enterprises were using teams outside of their own borders, outside of their own walls to help them in various different ways. And then the software that did what outsourcing was doing for them, came into play and I was in the right place at the right times. I wasn't a technologist by training, but was always intrigued by it. And if you're in big companies these days, you'll well know that the famous saying, "Software is eating the world. Software and technology plays an integral part in so much of what companies do today that you have to have a, a level of comfort with it just to get your job done
1: right well that 's exciting, so what do you see? you know I know you you 're doing a lot of research and thinking about the future of technology, and you know we 're seeing in industry 4 you know we 're seeing an increase in AI, robotics, all these kinds of technology-based uh, innovations. What do you see for the world in the workplace changing over the next five years, the next 10 years?
0: There's two versions of that answer. There's the, the pre-COVID and the right. post-COVID <laughs> versions of that answer. But the pre-COVID one, which still holds somewhat true, is, and I've always said this, that we've been automating since the wheel Innovation is a foundational component to human advancement, and it always has been. And so we will continue to do that. We will continue to be using the tools available to us to to make our lives better, to make processes more efficient, to make enterprises work more optimally. And so I anticipate us seeing the adoption of greater levels of automation that really shouldn't be adapted for the sake of just automating more, but should be adapted for the sake of creating better experiences, giving us access to more data so we can actually understand ourselves and our customers and our worlds better, so we can continue to iterate and improve. The post-COVID answer is, before it was sort of a nice-to-have and a sort of nice-to-do, now you've got no choice. A lot of the discussions that I have or that industry analysts that I speak to are having with the, the leadership in the Fortune 100, FTSE 100 firms around the world, they realize they didn't do enough before. They need to get their butts in gear, they and their, their organizations, and they have to aggressively invest in innovation and advancement, which these days is synonymous with digitization, automation, analytics, and insight. So it is absolutely imperative if companies want to survive, if they want to be on a strong footing for surviving other pandemics or just surviving in the face of of those companies that they compete with who are, are making the right investments, we need to take this seriously and sort of address it aggressively.
1: You know, that's interesting. And I had a conversation a few weeks ago, I had the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine on my podcast, and we talked a lot about resistance to technology and how a lot of that resistance is, you know, overnight basically been removed. And, you know, he was talking specifically about his children and education. And of course, I've been in education for a long time. And You know, we left for spring break and came back and we were teaching online and we had all these capabilities and yet we had not really explored them like we could have and maybe should have. And so higher ed is going to have to be reinvented and, you know, it's going to be really interesting and we're one of, you know, almost every industry out there is thinking about, you know, we're not going back to what we had before.
0: And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've got two young children myself, and they were the class that we would all routinely refer to as digital native. But now I've realized just how how partial that was. And in some small and some big ways, just things like the keyboard and the mouse pad, right? They were used to using iPads to watch videos on YouTube. And now they're, as you said, now they're attending classes and creating homeworks and projects via computers and they're interacting not only with their classmates but with their friends it's just it's spectacular right. to watch these right. these group facebook messenger for kid gatherings of of my children and friends of theirs not only locally but we'd moved from california so they're back in touch with their friends from childhood in california that they wouldn't have been interacting with as often if not for this so yeah. it's, it's been truly interesting to to see take shape.
1: You know, it's an exciting time, actually, if we're entrepreneurial, because everything is kind of off the table and we can kind of start over in in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of positive things that will come out of a lot of the, the challenges and the loss. So, you know, one of the big reasons that people haven't adopted some of these technologies is fear. And some of that fear is based in reality. Some of it's based in incorrect understanding and assumptions and ignorance, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you deal with that? And what do you say about people who feel threatened by, you know, artificial intelligence, cognitive kinds of technologies, RPA? You know, you have thoughts on that?
0: I do. I've long talked about the future of work. And as you say, inherent in the discussion is how receptive the worker is to said future of work. We recently did a survey actually of about 2,500 workers in the United States asking them about that, specifically, how do you feel about automation? Do you feel like it's a threat to you and your livelihood or a boon? And interestingly, the general perception was pretty positive even as far as people were more likely to apply to a company that was looking to leverage technology to facilitate them in their jobs. Because I think the narrative, if you get past the fear element, the narrative really is it's there to supercharge you. It's there to almost humanize you. There was a famous saying adopted in the RPA industry, it was coined by a professor from London School of Economics, about how RPA takes the robot out of the human. And ultimately, it means it, it removes the sort of the monotony and allows mm-hmm. you to be human. Now, the big challenge is do we have enough jobs that require humanity versus jobs that require repetition? But that's, that's up to us and our industries to find how best to employ the strengths we truly bring to the table, like empathy and judgment and humanity. But so I think that there's certainly the Luddite types of fear of the impact on people but it's not as overwhelming as as some would make it just again because the research we do finds people really quite enthused about the potential and, and we sort of just touched on this as far as education education is more accessible now than ever before. Mm-hmm. And so people who do find themselves concerned have a greater capacity and a greater access to skill development opportunities than ever before in human history. And so if, if you're not taking a moment to develop your own skills and to expand on the strengths that you bring to the table, but look for ways to, to make them modern, then you're missing a trick. You need to to take this time now and take advantage of what's available to you to to future-proof your your own skill set.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. You know, as an educator, one of my passions is thinking about how we can use technology to develop those soft skills that you're talking about, not just the skills that have traditionally been taught with technology like memorization kind of learning but how can we really teach the things that you're talking about the human side of the workplace that's going to be required you know those thinking jobs that are going to be required as we go forward i think that's a really exciting it's a really exciting time to be in education i think even though many people look at educators and think that you know that we haven't changed <laughs> over the years but i think there's actually a lot more going on than people realize
0: I absolutely agree. I think partly just because, again, the access to insight and input from colleagues and other educators around the world, the ability to influence a much broader audience of students than those who are just sitting in, in a classroom. And you're right, there's, there's so much research and study going on about how best to help people out. It, it truly is, I don't know if renaissance is too strong a word, but it, it certainly seems like real blossoming
1: Yeah. Well, this podcast is actually an example of innovation in education because we're using storytelling and this technology in a different format. So it's kind of fun. You know, corporations are also in the business of education. And I'm sure you've had to do, I've actually seen a few of your videos that, you know, you've been involved in educating the marketplace. This is common in many ways for entrepreneurs who are in innovative technologies. A lot of the early communication with customers has to be around education. Can you talk a little bit about that and your, the role you've played and how challenging that might have been Absolutely. or not?
0: Yeah. The RPA space, when I entered it, it was an interesting time period because some of the software companies had been around for almost a decade. So they weren't brand new. But the applications of those capabilities to the market that I was currently in, the outsourcing space, was relatively new. And so there was quite a bit of education needed to both sort of level set on what is the technology and then to explore how the application might add benefits to people. And as you, as you said, storytelling was, was my best tool, just because there is, frankly, nothing more annoying or boring than an advertisement and so i knew that we as a scrappy small startup weren't going to get just sort of the the mind space and the attention we needed to grow if i was just trying to you know what can i do to get you in this car today sort of thing it just it wasn't going to fly and Yet the extraordinary capability of getting message out over the internet using channels like LinkedIn and YouTube and Facebook and others were just spectacular. I can't, I mean, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little trite now because everyone knows about them, but I still to this day am just fascinated by the power that they have for an entrepreneur to build a personality, to tell stories, to create a following, and in so doing, educate a potential market and really engage with not only partners, but potential customers. So when the discussion is right, when the time's right, you're on a completely different footing than just an email that says, hey, can I sell something to you today? Mm -hmm. Hey, did you miss the last email? I want to sell something to you. So I really embraced that part over the years and, and truly loved storytelling and educating.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, I agree with you. There's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur (laughs) to start something new in many ways, even post-COVID and maybe even especially. Just this week, I got an email from a student interested in raising money for his tech startup. And, you know, this is a question that we commonly get. Of course, a lot of them aren't quite ready to raise money, but this student's been working for a few years. He's in our graduate program. And I was thinking, you know, you've developed a powerful company and sold it. Do you have any stories you can share about raising money? How did you go about getting the funds you needed to get Symphony Ventures off the ground?
0: Mm, Certainly. For sake of context, I'll I'll walk you through it. I, I have started two companies prior to Symphony and then Symphony. And all, well, one of them was sort of more dependent on technology The others were service-oriented that that implemented or supported those to understand and deploy technology. So there's different worlds if you're building and have to have built before you sell versus if you employing and rallying the capabilities of people like you see in a consulting world. But that said, you still need resources. And in the case of Symfony, the resources really came in the form of the co-founders dedicating their time and their resources to getting us off the ground for the first year and a half. So you've got to be comfortable and and able to go without a salary to invest in even the smallest things, invest in the plane flight to get you from Mm -hmm. home to a prospective client meeting, to setting up a website, buying the URL, et cetera. So, So we did that. We then did go and raise a round of private equity funding. And I've had lots of friends in the startup space who've raised VC funding. And then I guess the, the advice I would give anybody, you know, specifically the student who just called you and asked you for guidance and assistance in most cases, especially if it's a technology startup and you're asking people to bet on your ability to build something that will then be marketable. You're asking them not necessarily to invest in the tech, but to invest in you. And it's very much betting on the jockey, not the horse kind of scenario. And so, you need to spend as much, if not more, time making your personal story compelling, showing them that you've got what it takes, that you've got the passion and the focus and the, the ability to truly dedicate yourself to the success of this venture. The other is, and this is particularly relevant in the technology realm, it was, it was less so for me in the services realm, but in the technology realm, often you find really smart people who know that tech works. And so they're trying to convince people that the tech is cool. It is imperative that you know you're solving a problem and that you know the problem you're solving. It's not enough that the software does a thing. You need to know that that's a problem that pick your market, that banks, that owners of dogs, that healthcare companies have and you've got to spend a lot of time understanding the nuances and the challenges of that problem. Otherwise, you're not speaking your customer's language and they'll, they'll not be compelled to work with you and help you shape your product to a marketable, ready offering.
1: That's a really great point. Having worked with a lot of tech entrepreneurs, and I know you and I both, I think we learned we're graduates of tech-based schools. So we've been around a lot of techies many of them struggle with not getting too deep in the woods on the technology. And so it's, you know, that's one of the things with my students that I really push hard from the beginning is understanding how to do the research on the space. And I tell them all the time, you know, they want me to tell them, is this a good business idea or not? And I basically say, look, you're the expert. If you're not, then, you know, yeah. to go out and become the expert on this yes. case. So
0: Absolutely. Uh, and just because just because you know the technology is cool doesn't necessarily mean that there's a market that's enough. Right, that yeah. there's a market for it. Yeah. Because I mean having spent as much time as I have with enterprise buyers sometimes it's like be like me buying a car as that you can tell me all about the engine and how powerful it is but if if I like the color then that will probably compel me more than the engineering. And that's, there are a lot of different reasons why buying decisions are made. The cool tech is only one of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, great points. So we also talk a lot about resilience and failure with our students and with entrepreneurs and how that's an inevitable pathway to success. Were there any times along along the way with Symphony or even your other ventures that you thought maybe it was over or you should give up?
0: If there isn't a time, (laughs) <laughs> when, when, you, when you think it's over or you should give up, then let me know, because you've picked an extraordinary place to be and company to start. Yes. And I think that's, that's one, of the, one of the best things that can happen to an entrepreneur. And it certainly doesn't feel that way when it's happening. But that sort of adversity and challenge is what builds you. It's what gives you the thick skin and the resilience to power on. So absolutely. I sometimes joke I started three companies. One of them did well. <laughs> and and I, learned, I learned a lot from the other two. They didn't do terribly, but it's hard. And, and especially when you start to accumulate that which resembles success, you realize that there are two sides to that coin. So I remember when, when we were starting Symphony and I would call my parents and I would tell them that you know, we started a company you know, good for you. What does it do? Okay. We don't necessarily understand that, but we're proud of you. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the point where you say, well, we just hired our first employee. And then we hired our. we were at 10 employees. Now we're we, we at 50 employees. We've got the hundred employees. And every time you tell them that they perceive that as true signs of success and, and I, while saying it just thought payroll,
1: right? <laughs>
0: right. Cause it's, there's, there are two sides to the coin, and we were succeeding, but also bringing on greater and greater challenge and potential risk. And so so you need to be ready for that. You need to be tough as nails and, and comfortable with sleep deprivation as you worry about some of these things. Right. But, but it's part of the journey. And, and yeah.
1: A lot of people are suddenly depending on you. Yes. they completely different, and their livelihoods and their families.
0: And that significance, if – it shouldn't be lost on you, right? That you and the decisions you make and the chances you're taking impact not only you and your family, whoever's in your family at the time, but the broader family. Yeah. We called it the symphony family for many reasons, but that was one of them.
1: You know, resilience is something I've been studying for the last year or so because I had an interesting interaction with a student, and which I won't go into right now, but it led me to believe that that's an area we needed to spend some time on with our nascent entrepreneurs, because developing that safety net, those people around you, your own personal strength to get through things like that are really, is a really important part of the journey, I think, and I, can really I, help.
0: I couldn't agree more. And my co-founders and I were all later on in life so we had we had spouses we had kids and so there was there was that sort of support mm-hmm. network somebody who's younger who may not have that yet needs to find their support network because it is it's not always a walk in the park yeah and and there there are stresses that you need to find sort of productive safe and effective ways to to help you through
1: yeah good advice so about 18 months ago i mentioned earlier Symphony was acquired by Sykes Enterprise, which is a company right across the river from the university where I work. 60,000 people operating all over the world in engagement services space. So tell us, why, was this, why did this make sense for Sykes? Why did this make sense for Symphony? And right. congratulations, by the way.
0: Well, thank you. So context there, too. We actually were out contemplating either a second finance round. So we'd had that first round of private equity financing. We were looking at maybe we got a second round or you're always open to other alternatives and one of them is company. And as you may remember, before we started Symphony, I and my colleagues, my co-founders were in outsourcing. And so we were in the large industry that, that taps into talent and passion all over the planet to service enterprise clients. And Sykes is in that industry. And Sykes is specifically in the more of the the front office customer care side of that industry. For those who aren't familiar, you've got the back office transactional processing, people doing accounts payable and receivable and supply chain transactions for enterprises. And then you've got those who work with a company's customers. So either a call center or chat, some form of customer care. And Sykes is in that area. That's where RPA was pivoting to. RPA really had a strong footing in the back office transactional, but was trying to figure out where it was relevant. There were a a few key players who were RPA providers in the front office, but many others were trying to get there. And so it was kind of perfect marriage of a lot of different things going on at the same time. One, it was it was an ability for for I and my co-founders in the Symphony family to apply what we knew to a space or to a side of the space where the whole industry was pivoting. Two, it was an absolute culture match. We really, from the very first moment that we met the CEO and his executive team at Sykes, just, you know, it, it seems a little... A little simple, I suppose. But we just felt good about it. There's just, you sort of have to go with your gut sometimes. And it was a set of discussions that felt better than the others that we were having by, in some cases, by orders of magnitude. And so that was promising. And yes, it was in in an entrepreneur's journey an exit is sometimes a measure of degree of success or achievement that you, you may or may not have set out to to accomplish. And so all of those things kind of came together. And so Sykes bought us. We're now the symphony entity it goes by symphony, a Sykes company. We're doing some interesting discussions internally now strategically about how we all stitch into a bigger Sykes brand, but it's been, as you said, 18 months of integration. That's all been very positive. And back to an earlier point where we said that enterprises have this absolute imperative to hashtag digitize or die. Sykes with the symphony capabilities is in a perfect place to help enterprises to transform, digitize, and survive in this environment.
1: That's exciting. And of course, I know the Sykes folks. I know John, the founder, and Chuck, the Mm -hmm. CEO, and they are class A people. So, congratulations. I think it's probably a great marriage. And as you pointed out, culture is so important in an acquisition situation
0: it 's important in absolutely everything um, yeah that 's true i 've seen i mean the consulting relationships that we 'd have with clients if culture was a mismatch it made for a really in some cases contentious uh, mm-hmm. partnership it 's just very hard to achieve great things mm-hmm. if you can 't be aligned in certain ways as far as just your, your communication style, your standards, your levels of respect for one another. And you know, as you said, John and Chuck and, and the leadership team at Sykes has been a great team to, to be part of. And I get to work closely with them now, which is quite exciting and an honor.
1: That's wonderful. So I have some very good friends who have gone through that. And they found it kind of shocking to go from being the founder and in charge of everything to working to being employee, basically. What are you doing now with Sykes? And how is that transition going for you personally?
0: It's an interesting one. Great. Honestly, and I think some of it, I've been parts of big companies and small companies. I started my career at a large consulting firm. I was part of large outsourcing firms. And I think that was actually a huge asset in starting smaller companies, just because you, you see the importance of process and structure and rigor in some cases that may, may not evolve naturally if you only exposed to small companies. So I see that as a good thing. My transition has been quite easy. I mean, it was as we touched upon. I moved my family across the country, so there was that element too. I became a a Tampa resident relatively recently. Have two young kids in school, so it's there. Have been quite a few other changes to also wrap into the mix. But working with a large global organization that's very proud of who it is and what it's done over the last four plus decades has been a really exciting. Onboarding for me to get to know the Sykes family and to get to to serve this, as you said, nearly sixty thousand person enterprise. So you know, I, I think it's I think it's fine. I, I don't know. And if we refer back to some of the challenges of being an entrepreneur, sometimes it's nice to not have those challenges. Right. So, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> right. The losing sleep over payroll thing certainly have other requirements and and targets and challenges ahead of me but I'm free to focus on them and mentally not be so worn by by some of the challenges an entrepreneur faces.
1: Yeah, well that's exciting. So what's in store for you? What are do you have a couple of pet projects things that you'd be willing to share?
0: Sure. So, well, so like the prior question, there's a covid caveat. So prior to covid, yes, there were some there were some initiatives that we were doing around Looking at all of the strengths and capabilities across the organization around integrating these digital first operational approaches that some of which existed already in Sykes, but some of the, the skills that Symfony brought to Sykes. So, both for internal operations and for retooling our service catalog and the services we can offer to clients. Because of COVID, actually, I've, I've also spent a lot of time on another pet project. Sykes had a work-at-home capability. We had acquired a company several years ago, about eight years ago, that handled work-at-home, that had agents sitting at their homes and talking to clients, customers. And luckily, it wasn't insignificant. It was about 8,000 people within Sykes who were working from home, then COVID. So then the 23 countries that we operate in around the world, all were trying to figure out how best to, to keep their citizens safe and all making somewhat unique decisions on what a quarantine looks like, how to, to limit exposures. And so over the last few months, we've been rapidly deploying an internal education framework and platform to share all of the expertise that the 8,000 had with the other 50-some thousand people, many of whom are now working from home. So that's been extraordinary, just to take advantage of distance learning right. online training platforms right. and to put together a curriculum that spans the gamut from how do you use the technology to just how do you find how do you yourself manage your time how do you find peace in working from home certainly surrounded by distractions for many of us so that's been that's been a really interesting program to be at the helm of and, and it's been just so motivating and energizing to see members of our team in Costa Rica and Salvador and Mexico and the Philippines and Scotland and the Nordics and India and just see how resilient they are and how they're all adapting. So mm-hmm. that was not in the plans <laughs> <laughs> right. several months ago, but became, became most of the plan for the last right. few months. So it's, it's been an interesting one.
1: Well, the companies that had invested in digital assets, I'm on the board of a public company that is in their industry really leading in digital assets, and it has been huge for us. And I'm, It sounds like the same for, for Sykes, and that's impressive because I think digital assets and the ability to work from home, as you're pointing out, especially when you're a labor-intensive company like Sykes, yes, has got to be very valuable.
0: This is worthy of study for for many, many years to come. Right. If you look at, again, the the nature of the business we're in, we serve over 250 clients. And oftentimes, it's it's not exclusively, in some cases, not at all on our technology stack. It's theirs. So we're effectively the proxy for 250 different enterprise realities. And so we've been able to see throughout this, those realities that are better capable of of adapting and those realities that really were a constraint and digital and virtual are for the win i suppose those companies that had cloud based infrastructure were far more agile as it related to to pivoting quickly to to set teams up remotely
1: yeah it just accelerated everything didn't it our learning about what where our strengths were and where our weaknesses were as well so yep.
0: Acceleration really, yeah. is the is the word of the day. There yeah. two words I've I've used and heard more often than the last few weeks, which is unprecedented and accelerated. Accelerated. Those are the, yeah. Those are the words.
1: Yeah. So one last thought about that. You know, this the whole COVID 19 impact is huge and digital assets. There's also a lot of talk about whether or not outsourcing, you know, I know originally in talking with John, you know, the whole the whole start of Sykes and how it really grew up. It was kind of around that strategy of the, mm-hmm. the savings that could occur f- through outsourcing. What do you see for outsourcing? There's a lot of talk about that right now and how this pandemic's gonna affect that.
0: It's one of the reasons I love my job and I love this industry. Because it really does expose you to, as I'd mentioned earlier, the aspirations of the, the human family in so many countries around the world. Mm-hmm. We do see, and this is like a pestle analysis of you know, politics, economics, etc. We do see challenges with degrees of rising nationalism. We certainly have seen all sorts of interesting behaviors as a result of, of border shutdowns and, and travel embargoes in the face of the pandemic. But where I do have faith is enterprises will always do what's best for their stakeholders. And that means operating optimally. And that means tapping into great talent. And as you said, as we've accelerated into this reality where we can tap into teams further and wider than perhaps we knew we could and had faith in, in doing. We now have opened up actually quite a few more borders. I, for one, won't, won't think of tier one, two, three cities necessarily in offshore locations anymore because, because as long as there's infrastructure there, you can tap into to talent everywhere.
1: Anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I'd like to see that be sort of a, an accelerator and, and a boost to the concepts behind impact sourcing and creating prosperity for those in, you know, in, in rural America and small towns, some that were impacted by evolutions in industry and like coal mining towns, et cetera. And then I'm certain we'll see it in international environments like the traditional outsourcing countries like India, the Philippines, but also in, in real um, opportunity areas like, like Africa, for instance. So I mean, I guess all things being equal, enterprises still need to operate efficiently and effectively. The talent in the world exists. Education is better than it ever has been. So you've got more people who speak the languages you need them to speak, are comfortable with the technologies. AI is actually a really interesting sort of force because it requires so much training, Right. a car doesn't drive itself by car doesn't just magically know that's a stop sign or that's the side of the road it's because humans are training those machine algorithms and so we're going to need more and more of of those people to do that and in general my i guess my outlook is is optimism and i think i think we have a bright future ahead as we look to tap into all this talent around the world i don't think companies are going to repatriate on mass and even if they do they're still going to be hiring humans. I mean, whether we hire the humans from an outsourcing company or, or an enterprise hires the human, the human wins. I just know that the outsourcing industry itself created a set of capabilities that made them very good at finding, nurturing, and developing, and coordinating talent. And we are nothing more, if you wanted to simplify us down to the very basic sort of atomic level of what is outsourcing, it's, it is a talent machine. And I think that will never go out of style.
1: You know, as someone whose classes can sometimes be up to 50% from outside of this country, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's talent everywhere and there's wonderful people, human beings everywhere. And uh, we're a global economy. So it sounds positive and optimistic for Sykes and for Symphony Ventures. I know personally, I'm really glad to have you here, Ian, in the community. I usually like to, I'd love to talk more. We could continue forever, but I know you've got a lot to do, a lot of work to get back to. I usually like to ask my guests if they have one piece of advice to leave with our audience, what would it be?
0: So it's funny. We'll start with another context setting a story, and then I'll, I'll give you that one piece of advice. But it's funny, watching the trends and trying to understand how humans react to this, this quarantine situation, my family has reacted predictably, as so many have. So I do have a lot of work to get to, but I also have to go walk a puppy.
1: You got a puppy.
0: Because we got a puppy. That's a
1: big trend, yeah.
0: (laughs) It is a huge trend. So whatever stock there is to buy in companies that's related to puppies and puppy stuff... (laughs) And then ultimately puppy counseling, when we all go back to work and to the puppy work, goes, yes, yes. where has everyone gone? My first, <laughs> my first few months were, were very nurtured and now I'm alone. So that's my less serious statement. I love that. I guess the other, I mean, the final one, just in knowing that the audience is entrepreneurs. And like I said, I've started three things and I'm proud of every one of them, but I guess I would say don't be an entrepreneur because you're chasing status or necessarily focused on some sort of lucrative exit. You become an entrepreneur because it's just an absolute passion, right? You have this passion to build something or solve something or you know, crack a problem. And, and oftentimes, we, we referred to adversity, but oftentimes if you're doing it right, you are eating, sleeping, and breathing this thing. It is your baby sometimes to the detriment of of hobbies and free time and even <laughs> even relationships and and stomach lining, et cetera. So only go into I mean go into it with your eyes wide open and, and only go into it if if it is a true passion, if you want it to define you and do you want to define it. And that's that's what made my last few years so interesting, so challenging, but so rewarding. And I I absolutely love meeting entrepreneurs because you can see the ones who truly love what they're doing, who are absolute advocates for, the, for their team and for whatever solutions they've got. And that, that just energizes me. So, so good luck and congratulations to all the entrepreneurs out there. But know you're doing it for the passion and, and find those things that you love. That's what you should start companies in.
1: Great advice. Ian, where can our listeners connect with you?
0: Good question. I, Like I said, I, I absolutely love LinkedIn as a medium. I used it a lot for developing my personal brand and the brand of Symphony Ventures. So you can find me on LinkedIn, at I think forward slash iBarkin or Ian Barkin. And then also I've started a video podcast on, it's called One Take. Mm-hmm. And it was called One Take because Partly it's because I wanted the perspective of one expert who was my guest. I wanted their one take on something. But I also, I was I was committed to doing each of the shows in one take <laughs> and and Perfect. not creating a whole <laughs> bunch of post-production for myself because there was no one else who was going to do the post-production. So it's, it's a one take and you can find that actually on the Sykes website. It's sykes.com forward slash one take. And there's where I get to, to speak to, to interesting, informed, enlightened experts like yourself. I know we're going to have you on the show very soon.
1: Looking and, forward uh, to it.
0: And we explore future of work, life, and culture in this exciting time we live in.
1: That's great. Ian, thank you again for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much, Rebecca. It was an absolute pleasure.